Good, 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 good. All right. Um, I'm excited that we are continuing in our series in Deuteronomy. Uh, we're at a big chapter tonight. We've already had Deuteronomy 4 um, and then Deuteronomy 5 and 6 last week. Um, but we're up to a really big one in Deuteronomy 7. Um, I'm really excited to be, to be diving in. Uh, but let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the God that speaks to us. And Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts tonight, that we would hear what you have to say. Please, God, would you show us more of what you are like? And would we respond to your word? Would we not just be mere hearers of your word, but doers also? And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I wonder if anyone got any good nicknames um, growing up. Um, I was at Wyson's Ferry this morning and there's a, there's a man named Roy Fox and he said he only got one nickname growing up and it was Foxy. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, but for me, I actually had a, a fair, like more than just one because I'm a redhead, I'm tall, my last name is Man. Um, people had amp, ample ammunition. Um, some good ones throughout history was Match Dick, classic. Um, on the back of my year 12 jersey, I got Manchild. Um, and this, this other one was kind of funny because it's kind of like Christian as well, the Prey Mantis. Um, and also more recently, Sally's been calling me Big Red. Thanks, Sally. I've, I've tried to like dish it back, but it's really not working. Um, I... I like, these, these nicknames that I've been given, they describe me to an extent, but I would like to think, at least I would like to think, so it makes me feel better. I would like to think that they are just scratching the surface of, of who I am. Maybe they're not. Maybe I just am a big red and, and that's it. Um, but what nicknames do you have? How would people describe you? What do people say about you? Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the Bourne movies. Um, in the first one, the main character, Jason Bourne, he is found with some gunshot wounds. Um, he's kind of just floating in the Mediterranean Sea, struggling. Um, when he escapes, he is like running for his life. And as he's running for his life, he's in this haze because he just doesn't know who he was. That'd be super scary not knowing who you are. And I think many people in our world today are in a sort of identity crisis where, like, it's pretty common to hear people say, just be yourself. But when you say, just be yourself, like, who is that? Like, who am I? And you might think, Chris, that is way too deep to be talking about that on a Sunday night. But it's a fair question. Like, who are we? Is our identity wrapped up in just our appearance, just our job, our relationship status, our sexuality? I just wonder whether, whether some of us are, are in a bit of a haze of uncertainty, just going, who, who am I? What is my identity? Because what we see in our passage tonight is God, he actually wants to tell his people, Israel, who they are. Just to remind us where we've been, uh, we know that God, he has saved his people from Egypt. Like in Deuteronomy 1, it 
God is described as being like a father who picked up Israel and he carried them out of there. It was all him. He saved them from Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them the law. And yet we see that Israel, they are so quick to forget who saved them. And they are so quick to fashion and make this other God, this idol, this golden calf, and to bow down and worship it. They're so quick to do that. And because of this, because of their sin, that generation and their kids were left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And now we meet that second generation. For most of them, all they would have really known would have been wilderness. And we meet them and they're standing on the dusty Moab plains and they're about to enter into the promised land, which their parents couldn't, and they're about to go in. And I just wonder what they would have been thinking as they're listening to their leader, Moses, and as Moses is telling them that he's actually not going in. What would have this second generation have been thinking or feeling? Are we really a nation? Just been doing little bits and pieces, just wandering around. Who are we? And so Moses, he preaches, but he doesn't preach from a pulpit. He preaches open air and he implores this generation to know who they are. And what I'm going to be doing tonight is I'm actually going to be using verse 6 as a bit of a frame, just like a frame that you would have for a picture, a bit of a frame uh, for the whole of the chapter. So we kind of know where we're going. Because in chapter 6, Moses says two key things about their identity. So there are two points tonight. If you're making notes, make sure you, you kind of jot those down. And firstly, Moses proclaims that they are a holy people. Let me read it out. It says, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord, your God. Do you, know, do you notice that Moses says you are a holy people, not you will become, you are. This is your identity. You've been saved. You re, you've been redeemed by me. I've carried you and you are holy. The word holy isn't something we'd, we'd really use much today, uh, but it just means to be set apart, unique, different, or even brightness. Um, now, you guys probably know just how on trend I am fashion-wise, um, clearly, um, that a, a few months ago I bought a, a fresh new pair of white shoes. They're on me tonight. Um, when I first bought them, Pre said that they are blindingly white. They were sort of blinding his eyes a little bit. Um, and that's true. And, and I think, I remember when I was going to buy them, Helen just said, Chris, don't do it. Like, they're just going to get so dirty. You will regret it. And I think just to maybe kind of prove my point, I have never taken such good care of any pair of shoes in my life. I mean... I don't, I don't just wear these bad boys anywhere. Like, when, when we went to day camp, I did not wear these on day camp because I'm like, they're going to get muddy and dirty and ruined. 
It's just not going to happen. When I took Ruby to the park, I'm like, I'm not going to wear my white shoes because Helen will be proven right and and they're not going to stay white. See, God's people, they're holy. And because they are holy, God doesn't want them to be lured away into sin. Just like I'm not going to go walking through the mud in my white shoes, God doesn't want his holy people to be lured away to other nations into sin. He doesn't want that. And so that's why what he says at the start of chapter 7 is pretty radical. He says in in verse 1, When they go into the promised land, they are to drive out many nations. He lists seven. They all end in it. So I've sort of called them the seven ites. To drive out the seven ites. Um, But not just drive them out. Verse 2, they are to destroy them completely. That they're devoted to God. Make no treaty. Show no mercy. Don't Don't intermarry. Don't get your kids to intermarry. For they will turn your children away from following me to worship other gods. Break down their altars. Smash their idols. Show no pity. Verse 16. Verse 21. God is with you. God will drive out these nations little by little. Burn their images. Verse 25. And verse 26. You must not bring an abhorrent thing into your house. I wonder, after reading that, whether this part of God's word makes you feel slightly unsettled. I wonder whether you think this is just unfair. This just seems uncalled for. See, God wanted these seven surrounding nations to be destroyed, to be driven out and destroyed ultimately, Because he knew his holy people would be lured off to sin. Into the mud, so to speak. He knew that they would abandon him like their forefathers. He knew that they would be led astray into sin. And sin leaves a barrier between us and God and it would ultimately lead to the destruction of his people. And Yahweh desired to be near to his people, his holy people. So that's why they were to go in and to drive out and to destroy these nations. But who are these nations? Who are these people that they're going to go into well let's do a little bit of a bio on them a bit of a backstory so we get a bit of a broader picture uh, we hear about them in Genesis 10 uh, verse 6 where we hear about Ham who's one of the sons of Noah so we know Noah Noah's Ark he had a kid called Ham and then Ham had some sons um, Cush Egypt Put and Canaan Uh, And then we read about Canaan and his sons in verse 15 of Genesis 10. Canaan fathered Sidon, his his firstborn. Then Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the the Gigashites, the Hivites, the Akarites, the Sinites, the Avadites, the Zemorites, 
the Hamathites, and afterward the Canaanite, the Canaanites, the Canaanite clan scattered. The Canaanite border went from Sidon, going toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and going toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Abdomah, Zeboim, as far as Lashar. So many good names there. So when, when we're talking about Canaan, sometimes in the Bible when it talks about Canaan, it's talking about this cluster of these sons and these different lands. And we also read in, in Genesis that Canaan lived, a, lived alongside the parasites that we read here in, in Deuteronomy 7. That's a bit of their bio, but what were they like? These nations that they're about to go in and, and see and drive out and devote to God and ultimately destroy completely. Well, it, we know that they worshipped other gods. It's believed that they were involved in religious prostitution, divination, at times, child sacrifice. And so we read this in Genesis 15, verse 16, where it says this, in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites, this group, has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, all the way back in Genesis, God says, I see their sin. I see what they have done. And I'm being patient. It hasn't reached its full measure. But at some point they will be held accountable. And at Deuteronomy it says that the time has come. God will keep his promise. And he will bring judgment for his holy people and for his name's sake. Yet I just wonder whether this, this idea still bothers some. And I wonder whether some of you are here tonight and just think, this God of the Old Testament just seems so foreign. I mean, the God of the Old Testament just seems full of judgment and the God of the New Testament seems full of grace. I mean, they just seem different. I remember going to SMEC um, and in one of my classes, um, my lecturer was Kit, actually, who was here on Wednesday. Um, great guy. At the end of one of his lectures, this thought has stuck with me um, that he said. He said, what we see in the Old Testament is we see a God of judgment and grace. Yet when we come to the New Testament, we, sh we also see a God of judgment and grace, yet we see even more judgment. And even more grace. Yes, the judgment in Deuteronomy 7 that will happen is bad. Yet the judgment we see in the New Testament makes that look like nothing. When Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath, when Jesus is struck down and takes what you and I deserve, takes the hell we deserve. When he dies 
And then the New Testament also talks about when he comes back and that second judgment for those that don't know him, that will be very significant. There is judgment, but there is more judgment in the New Testament. But there is also grace in the Old Testament. But there is far more grace when we come to the New, where we see that this Jesus who hung upon that cross, he offers sinners, undeserving sinners, refuge. He says, come to me. And as Blake said, that judgment will pass over you. And you will be free. See, the God of the Old Testament and and then the God of the New Testament, they are the same. Very much so. And the way he deals with sin is either Jesus takes the punishment for sin for us or on that final judgment we'll face it ourselves. And if we have come to Jesus, if we have put our trust in him, then do you know what? We have actually become a part of that new Israel. We have actually become a part of God's people. We have become his holy people. We have been called to be set apart. And today God has not called us to wipe out the nation's In this way, no, not at all. God has called us to go to the nations, urging that they repent before Christ returns, that they would come back, that more from the nations would would be one for him. However, if we're with him, if we are with Jesus, we are still a holy people. Jesus, by his blood, has made us clean. He has washed us free from the guilt of sin and death. Yet as he's holy people, he doesn't want us walking through the mud of sin. He doesn't want us living in sin. He redeemed us. He saved us. And so he wants us to put it to death, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles and leads us astray. So what might that look like for you? Uh, a thought that I've had, uh, this is just a kind of just a pastoral thought, has been it's really, really good to be meeting up with another Christian or another Christian mentor. Uh, for me, that has been so helpful because another person can actually speak into your life and they're actually able to speak into those spiritual blind spots that we can't actually see. And so if you don't actually have someone that you're meeting up with regularly and praying with and reading the Bible with, please do that. And so they can actually speak into your life and you can talk about that sin that is just kind of hanging on for dear life that you can't shake or break, that addiction that is just kind of stealing your joy in Jesus. Meet up with a mentor. That would be really, really good. And another thought that I've had on this is, I know the Bible doesn't talk about dating. It talks about marriage and people not being yoked to the unbeliever. Um, but I've been in, in doing youth ministry for, this is my ninth year. And I know what Satan's greatest tactic is that he 
that he uses more than anything else. And it's when a Christian comes and dates a non-Christian. Because often what you will see is that someone's going to get pulled one way or the other and it's often the Christian losing their faith. We're holy people. Our faith is precious. Make sure we're, we're meeting with people and we're talking about what's going on in our hearts. Whether it's pride or whether it's lust or whether it's ungodly anger or whether it's staying silent about Jesus. We're holy people. Doesn't mean we're perfect. We've been saved by Jesus. It's not by our works. It's by him. But as he's holy people, he wants us to live differently than the world around us. We're holy people. But secondly, um, Moses continues to this second generation. And in verse 6, he says this. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. See, the second thing about their identity here is that they are his chosen possession. The NIV actually puts the word treasured in there as well. His chosen treasured possession. I wonder whether any of you guys had uh, toys growing up um, that you were attached to. My three siblings did and I didn't, which probably just shows that I had no soul or I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Maybe it messed me up. Um, my older sister had this one thing and she had this yellow blanket called More B. Don't ask me why it was called More B. Such a strange name. Anyway, um, this thing, she was like glued to it. She was attached to it. She would never let it go. It was precious. And as the years rolled on, More B just kind of like turned brown and got gross and it would just like kind of fall apart and she'd still keep it. And I vividly remember one occasion um, when I was living at home and I was, I think in year 12, I, I see this bit of rubbish on the ground uh, and I think, you know what? I'm just going to be the good son that I am because like I always clean up and I'm going to pick that up and throw in the bin. And as I'm, as I'm about to put in the bin, I hear this shout from the hallway saying, no! And I, I turn around and I see my sister and I'm about to put it in and I just say, what? What's wrong? I'm doing like humanity a favour. Come on, I'm chucking this thing in the bin. And she just said, you can't do that. And I said, why? And she said, well, that's more B. I'm like, you're kidding. I'll give you 10 bucks, I'll buy you a different blanket. Like, <laughs> seriously. And she took it, and I'm pretty sure she's still got bits of more B. Why was more B so precious? It just didn't make sense to me. She loved this thing. See, see secondly, what we see is that Moses says this in verse 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth and a fairly adequate question to ask is well why it doesn't really make sense and he answers it God says through Moses the Lord was devoted to you and chose you not because you are more numerous 
than all peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. God says to this second generation, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous, because you were this hotshot nation. You weren't impressive. You didn't have anything together. You were this little misfit group. I chose you to be my treasured possession because I loved you. Why? Because I loved you, because I loved you, because I loved you. In this whole passage, in terms of justice and fairness, this should be the scandal, really. This should be the outrage. Israel getting what they don't deserve. And because of Jesus, the one who did keep the law fully, and because he died for us, if you're with him and if you have genuinely put your trust in him, do you know what? You have been chosen by him. And you weren't chosen to be his precious child because of anything you did, because of how great you were or because of your great works, but it was simply out of his love and his mercy. Um, this week, for some reason, I never do this, but for some reason I was flicking through my um, prayer journal and I totally forgot that I had prayed this and it was just God's providence that I flicked it open to this, this week of all weeks that I'm preaching on Deuteronomy 7 and, and I prayed this in January 18 this year I said, Dear Dad, thank you that you didn't choose me or set your affection on me because of how great I am, because I'm not, because of how impressive I am, because I'm not. I am weak, one of the foolish things of this world, but it was because you loved me and you brought me out with a mighty hand and you redeemed me from slavery to sin. You did, you did it because you are God. You are faithful keeping your covenant of love to a thousand generations. And now, because of Jesus, I'm your treasured possession. Thank you, and help me to love you with everything. Um, it's a good thing for those people that get distracted when you pray to write them down. I, I find it helpful. But Moses, preaching here, he... He wants to remind this small, timid nation of who they are. They are holy. And they are his treasured possession. They are loved by God. At the start of the night, I said, in our world today, we, or many in our world today, are in a bit of an identity crisis. We're not really sure who we are. We hear echoed from our movie screens, just be yourself. And we just go, ah. I don't know who that is. I pray that God would remind us tonight. If you're not with Jesus and if you haven't trusted in him, and if you are in a bit of a haze about this, let me implore you to come to him. He invites you. He would love you to be a part of his family, a part of his people. But for those of you who are with Jesus, know that you are holy 
And that doesn't mean he wants us to be living with pointed nose looking, looking down upon others. But it does mean that he wants us to hate sin. He wants us to be throwing it off. We are holy, but we are also his treasured possession. We are loved by him, and that gives us enormous comfort and security. It frees us to action. It frees us to live for him. And it assures us that life isn't this epic test. We've got to try to earn his love. But in Jesus, we have it, and we can enjoy it. Don't buy the lies of whatever labels culture puts on you. Don't believe for a moment that your identity is bound up solely in your job, in your income, in your skills, in your friendship circles. But if you're with Jesus, know what label he has given you. Know what name he has given you. Holy, precious, loved, chosen. And I pray that that new name would compel you to action and that we would be living in light of it. Amen.